welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. We have returned, risen like a phoenix from a summer of inactivity to bring you the latest and some of the not so latest from the world of sport and sports business. Joining me, as ever, is Sports Pro senior writer Adam Nelson. Hi, Adam. Good afternoon, Owen. And joining me, as often, is published author and unofficial partner Richard Gillis. Hi, Richard. Hello there. And joining us for the first time, we're very happy to have Press Association's chief sports reporter, Matt Slater. Hi, Matt. Hello, everybody. Well, what a few months it's been and what a few weeks it's been in the sports industry, but we find ourselves once again asking whether sport can help itself. Um, we are pitched into another series of corruption issues and doping issues and just a general malaise and lack of trust in, in professional sport. Is this something we can do anything about or is this just the natural state of things? Is this just a case of Allardyce lost? Adam Nelson... What do we make of, uh, of Big Sam and the general, uh, general eruption of um, old-fashioned bung stories coming out of English, English football in the last few weeks? Yeah, well, I've, I've written a column on uh, Allardyce Lost um, for the magazine this month, and I think um, the, the, the personal story of, of Sam himself is, is slightly... I understand why people have sympathy with him. Um, I understand why people are saying... There's not actually that much wrongdoing gone on, um, but the problem for Sam is that his employers are at once uh, trying to administer the England team uh, at the same time as being uh, the governing body for soccer in the country. So they can't really sit there and with one hand be uh, paying a man who they known to have been uh, embroiled in these corruption scandals, while with the other handing out punishments to other people who the Telegraph have claimed are going to be implicated further down the line. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a recurring theme in, in a lot of these stories, is that, that sport is, is so small on the inside, and, um, you know, there seem to be so many people involved in it who are just conflicted in so many mm. different directions, Matt. Yeah, it's interesting that you introduced this topic by saying, um, could sport help itself? And in some ways, that's the problem, isn't it? There's way too many people helping themselves. Um, I hear what Adam's saying, and um, I think he did have to go. He had to go because of perception. He had to go because it was unbelievably daft. It looked greedy. It was greedy. Um, and I think if any of us take a new job, you don't have to. It doesn't have to be a, an FA highfalutin type job. Any any job, there will be a probation period. There'll be various clauses in there about disrepute and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. However, let's just th- let's just think about what he actually said and did, and let's mm. think about what we've seen from the Daily Telegraph and. What I started to think as the week went on was that sports, actually, football, has come a hell of a long way recently. A lot of it's to do with the sort of post-Portsmouth meltdown uh, introduction of rules, how they've tightened up third party. And if you start to look at the transcripts, I mean, Allardyce made quite clear that it's quite hard Mm. to get away with bungs and bribery these days. Apparently that's what Redknapp said in his Evening Standard column just the other day. He, he, he repeatedly said this. And what you've actually got is an assistant manager, Tommy Wright, taking a five grand bum, and various other people talking about rumours. So it's, it's, I, I've got, I'm in, slightly conflicted about mm. how I feel about this 
this thing. Now, does this mean that I think that football's clean? Do I, does this mean that I think there's no corruption or, or, or bungs or bribery in football? No, not at all. I just think that it's actually probably cleaner now than it has been for a very, very long time. Mm. To go back to your point, look, sport continues to get into these pickles because it's just not very well run. It's just the governance structures, the conflicts of interest, the various agendas, the lack of transparency, the quality of people in key jobs. It's just not there in terms of what we'd expect from, I don't know, academia or other parts of life, uh, corporate, corporate, uh, large corporate entities. Um, Banking. Well, well, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. And which is why we shouldn't, you know, hit football with too large a stick. Because its problems aren't unique. Mm. But let's be honest, you know, sport has had a terrible, terrible run of it. And and these problems just are self-inflicted. Yeah. Richard? Well, I've got two things to say. One is that I I sort of am conflicted in the same way. And I don't... um, I was try- I've been trying to think why, and there's a couple of things. One, the decision that the FA made was sort of thrillingly decisive, but it felt like a, um, uh, a management wanting to appear decisive and wanting to make a decision that was, you know, that Martin Glenn, obviously, and we all know that mm-hmm. we're going to push position him as the sort of corporate Pepsi co guy, and, you know, we don't, we, he's the business guy to. to um, He's the man who killed Captain Birdseye, famously. Is he really? That's no, true. I know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think the, it's the, the fact that Glenn and Clarkwin knew as well was yeah. key here. They, yeah. That they had to appear strong. They mm. had to set down a marker. I mean, sometimes the sort of the, 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 the diff- really difficult thing is to do nothing, and that's really hard to do, particularly when you're new. So I think there's that factor that, that has probably been a bit underplayed. The other part to this is that um, the and this is a sort of slightly broader point but there is a leadership industry out there that is you know has got a great deal of money and wants to sort of pull in sports football managers whatever you know whatever they are fair game and it just sort of goes to show the sort of appeal and the marketing benefits of the football man- you know, the England football manager's job mm-hmm. is that that it is entirely credible that he'll go for a you know a drink and someone will offer him 400 grand to to, to, to just turn up in you know, a foreign land, and mm. and a, and that all of that makes complete sense. Doesn't sound or look good, though, does it? It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. But then, when you are, um, yeah, it doesn't. I'm Three not million pound job, best yeah. paid manager out there by a long shot in terms of international managers yeah, with, yeah. with bonuses. Yeah. It does not look good. Two three weeks into that role, to be chasing hundred grand a speech in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember, you know. A golfer, let's put it that way, um, talking about talking to, uh, and they just won the uh, a, an event in in sort of uh, apartheid South Africa, and uh, they then it was the Sun City Million, and, and the quote was, you know, yeah, but after tax, what have you got? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a, you know, it's like, was it, was and still, that's when a million quid was a, was a lot of money. Uh, you talk about perception, Matt, and of course one of the problems is that, I mean, it's come out this week in some, some quotes that haven't been particularly well received by, by Big Sam himself, but it's the fact that people could believe it of Sam Allardyce, that he would yeah. he would be uh, 
susceptible to this kind of thing. In fact, the text that I got that alerted me to this story just said pint of wine. Um, and it just it fed so much into this perception of him as you know a kind of old school football character who might be involved in this kind of thing which is why not only did I think the the fact and I completely agree with Richard that that Clark and Glenn being new and how it can sometimes be hard to do nothing is a factor here I sometimes I, I did sort of think that there was an inevitability about this that Allardyce was a kind of controversial choice. Mm. Whilst it made complete sense in that they boxed themselves into a bit of a corner and we were at rock bottom having lost to Iceland, there weren't that many great candidates out there and there's a clamour now for, let's keep it English, it was a, it was a bit of a punt. Mm. In, in ter- I'm talking in terms of things like due diligence, the fact that, hold on a minute, you know, Panorama had a right mm. old go at Allardyce yeah. only ten years ago, he mm. didn't sue. You know... It, it was again a decision that they took wanting to look decisive yeah. they'd had a manager who possibly even caught them on the hop a little bit by resigning as abruptly as he did and they thought right we need to get someone else and we need to not be strung along by well, you know, a Thomas Tuchel or next yeah. hot shot European manager we need to get somebody in who we know is available and will do it um, and as it turns out they've managed to do that and he's done the entire job and got sacked in between Sports Pro podcasts. Um, <laughs> that's that's not his about, fault. Yeah. I think that says more about the Sports Pro <laughs> podcast. Than it does about but the other thing that it speaks to, and, and we're going to jump around topics a little bit here, but the other thing that it speaks to is a kind of um, a more general weariness with, with corruption in, in sport of various stripes. And we'll, we'll bring in something that's that you've been working on a lot in the last few weeks, Matt, and that's this, um, this fancy Bears League. Mm. Which sounds like, you know, uh, it's come from a website for men of a certain predilection, but in fact is to do with uh, therapeutic use exemptions right. of um, various athletes. Um, again, it, it, one thing that struck me with this, obviously, it's raised some specific uh, questions about certain athletes um, of very high profile, and there's also been some some kind of waffle in there. Oh, lots of waffle. Um, but. It kind of indicates how complex and alienating a subject that anti-doping has become for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a tricky one, this one, um, because on the face of it, we've got stolen medical data here. Right? It's stolen, it's hacked. Um, some of this stuff is personal, some of it isn't. You know, some of it is, well, the vast majority of it is asthma medication. Um, but there are one or two other more personal issues in there that, that you or I or anyone around this table, anyone listening, might want to keep personal for umpteen different reasons. So this stuff's been stolen. Um, you have to immediately say, and if you're writing about this, you have to immediately say, this stuff is legal. TUE's illegal. It's recognised by the WADA code for good reason. Because if you didn't have a TUE process, you'd effectively be saying to people with a variety of chronic illnesses, from diabetes to asthma to Crohn's disease to, you know, the list goes on, ADHD, that you can't play elite sport, that the medicine you need to function mm. renders you ineligible to play sport. Now, that can't be fair, can no. it? That can't be fair. I think most people would agree with that. However, over the years, a body of opinion has grown that the TUE system is open to abuse. And the the, the the two biggies, 
Well, I'm going to give you the biggie because otherwise we're going to be all day. Is asthma. Now, most people I think have an idea of what an asthmatic kid was like, and it's based on the, the asthmatic kid at school. Yeah. You know, the, the kid that was excused games. Mm. Well, you never picked him, did you? When yeah. You, when you're picking teams, you wouldn't go for the asthmatic kid. Exactly. And it. And in some I ways, was joking, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, but, but I think we had, we had a fantastic asthmatic kid. But I, but I think this is the perception. I think this is the at the core of it. That yeah, people yeah. go back to. Oh, I remember when I played team sport, or I played in, I played sport at school, or whatever it was. And the asthmatic kids were excused or weren't very good. Now, the whole concept of asthma is way more complicated than that. Levels of asthma. There's a huge spectrum. Exercise-induced asthma. Mm. Now, does that mean that, does that make it open for abuse? Well, in, in, some, in many people's eyes, it does, because then you start to sort of think, well, hold on a minute, the general, general population, whatever it is, less than 10% are asthmatics. Why, why are one-third of Team Sky asthmatic? Why, why is half the British swimming team asthmatic? What's going on there? That's not right. These, mm. these people are unbelievably fit. So it's, it's a really tricky one, because the doctors will tell you, no, this is all legitimate, this is all fine, they've all been tested. What is that if that's not asthma? That is, the, that is a medical dictionary definition of an asthmatic response that I'm seeing there. They deserve medicine. So what you've got in all this hack data, and the key ones we're talking about are Sir Bradley Wiggins, really. Mm. That's, that's how this story has, has crystallised in this country. He took three big injections to deal with asthma and his pollen allergy before three very big races, including the 2012 Tour de France. And look, let's be honest, they were preventative. They were, they were preventative. He wasn't having an acute asthmatic attack. There isn't much suggestion that he'd had an acute asthmatic attack, but it was preventative, and it definitely wiped out the possibility of an asthmatic attack. Unfortunately, the history of cycling is that that drug was abused by lots of dopers, and it does have performance-enhancing qualities. So that's, mm. that's where we're at. We're at in this really weird ethical grey area. Mm. It's a great big blurry line, and it's yeah. tricky. And, I mean, one of, the, one of the conversations I remember having more than once in the week before... Rio 2016, between the IOC confirming its decision on how it was going to respond to the McLaren report on Russian doping and the IPC confirming its decision was to do with, you know, state-sponsored doping and individual athletes' actions and team actions, and it got to feel like an amateur law conference. Oh, yeah. Um, because of, you know, the range of very involved but quite woolly and quite frustrating answers that people were given. And, I mean, that... People want this to just be something that's over, essentially. People want definite black and white answers. We all do, in, 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 in all walks of life. They're not going to get one here. They're just not. And, and if I've got a sort of criticism of the way some of this has been discussed and talked about, it's... This isn't, this isn't Russian state-sponsored doping. This isn't East Germany. This isn't Lance Armstrong taking cocktails of drugs. This isn't Ben Johnson... This is something different. I think it might at times be unethical, and I think it's definitely worthy of debate, but let's not equate one with the other. They're, they're not the same. Russian state-sponsored doping is an unbelievable story of fraud. It's a disgrace, and we're going to be living with the consequences for a while yet to come. What we're talking about here at TUE is something different, and it's more complicated and more nuanced and needs to be treated differently. Mm. Okay, I think that's a, a good note to finish the first part of our comeback podcast on. Stay with us.
Welcome back, everyone. Um, Richard Gillis, what did you do with your summer holiday? <laughs> well, I'd love it two weeks in Mallorca, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for asking. What, anything, anything else going on? <laughs> well, apparently there was, a, there was an Olympics and the Paralympic Games on in, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil um, for a few weeks. Uh, I'll never catch on. Matt, did you, you hear anything about that? I did hear a, a few bits of bobs. I, I, I went. Uh, I think it was the Paralympics. I, I watched that. Uh, there was European football championships before that. We're not we're going to gloss no, over we, that. We were still, yeah. we were oh, still broadcasting oh, at that okay. point. So. Right. Well, the least said about that, perhaps. Um, no, the Real Olympics, yes, I went to that. It was uh, um, interesting. Um, I'd be intrigued to hear the views of people who, who weren't there and were watching from home, just how, how it looked and how it felt, because um, for me it was kind of, if I was there for sort of three and a bit weeks, I'd say the first two weeks I was effectively a crime correspondent or, or a kind of like things going wrong, like engineering mm. stories. Um, it, it genuinely felt every day, we'd go along to these daily press briefings with the IOC and the Rio 2016 organisers and we'd all be looking around, little journalists from around the world going, no, seriously, what, what's going wrong today? I mean, are they going to make it to the end? Never, never mind, you know, the story about the Paralympics. That was second half of the Olympics when they spent all the money. We were generally thinking that the Olympics, this, this, this is unbelievable. That every single day, they would be pounded, the, the, the spokespeople, for about 45 minutes with just a, a list of things that weren't right. Mm. But to be fair to them, and I, they deserve unbelievable credit for this, they rolled with the punches beautifully. I mean, if I would say one thing about the Brazilians, they just sort of kind of get by. They are wonderful fixers and bodgers and and spin doctors, natural spin doctors, and they and they they delivered. It got it, in some ways the games got better as it went on. Mm. So, sounds like my CV. Though. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, what I would say, I mean, just just on that. And the view, the view from the uh, the the, la- the uh, sofa, it looked pretty good, you know. And and you know the the the, the more and obviously as every Olympic pa- every Olympic Games passes, we we you know and us in the business of sport, we you know to get into you know the who's doing what. But actually, the show is was there and it was good and you know it, all the rest of it. I don't quite know how sustainable it is you know and, and we'll sort of talk about that probably but it, it just it's such an extraordinary event that quite often I think that you know and again I because we've been doing this a long time you know the sort of business of sport you know stuff you do notice when that actually people forget the sport quite often and mm-hmm. and, um, and they say oh you know it's a disgrace that the, the you know the 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 traffic lights and, and the, you know, all of the traffic stuff and the engineering and all of that malarkey, mm. which is all completely true. And there's money is being lost and trusted, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but it is still the, the sport always still saves it. Yeah. Now whether they can carry on doing that, you know, and relying on it, and the athletes get them out, of, you know, get them out of trouble. But it's still fantastic. The stories are still brilliant, and it is the one time where you know you are watching sports which you wouldn't normally watch and it just the audience I mean I, I sort of you know you spend a bit of time in, in the world of golf you know and that didn't the men's game didn't cover itself in glory the lady the women's game was, was really uh, I thought came through very strongly both pre and during 
Um, but the golf event looked great. It mm. did, didn't it? E- yeah. Even the golf yeah, actually even turned golf. out all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, a proper winner, a decent last day. So that, you know, the whole narrative running into it was just this doom and gloom and disaster. Um, and I've got, you know, I get it. It's news, and I, you know, I'm a journalist, so it's like a, you understand it. But it's there is a sort of aspect where um, the wonder you forget the wonder, and you forget the sort of how it it looks just a normal punters, you know. Mm. And the sports business does get a bit hooked into, and it's that's its job um, to to you know to find out these stories. But actually, we need to counter it with the, the sheer brilliance of the athletes sometimes. Yeah. I mean, narrative is the word, and um, you know, you, you talk, Matt, about every day pursuing these stories about engineering and about um, you know whether it's a, a bullet through a tent or whether oh, yeah. it's stones through a, a, a bus or stones or bullets, who knows? Yeah. Um, but there was definitely a agenda is a little bit strong, but the prevailing mood going into it was things are going to go wrong and you chase up the things that are going to go wrong. Um, yeah, I would argue that's the authentic experience. You know? Well, absolutely. I think we I think we take the the, the sort of ex, the, the sort of uh, event experience and marketing industry has run yeah. hugely ahead of the sports mm. business, and the level of expectations around you know a London Games compared to a Rio Games are massive. And I think we need to sort of cut them some slack. You know, the South think, American you know, Games, you know, and, you know yeah. and and we'll go to Tokyo. Will be extraordinary because of its you know that the, but then you take it's like when the World Cup went to South Africa mm. you know or the World Cup goes to Brazil you think you know these are this is this is sort of they're not third world countries but they ain't London and they're not Tokyo yeah. because they just haven't got that amount of money well I mean the, the, the other thing with an Olympics um, the very nature of an Olympic game suits certain types of cities better than it suits other types of cities it suits London has this, as much as we run it into the ground, it has this really comprehensive public transport network that gets you from any part of London to any part of London in a pretty reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Rio is about four times the size yeah. in terms of land. Yeah. And, you it has know, lots of mountains and lakes, as I discovered. Yeah. I mean, it's, away, don't yeah, it's, it's, it's just a remarkable place. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right about... Um, so you think about... Um, London is it puts on major world class sports every week and major world class events every other week. You know, do we do we limit the Olympic Games, the World Cups, the countries like that, to cities like that? Yeah, or yeah. do you try and spread it around a bit? Mm. Now well, the other bit to that is that you know, the other trope to that is is do you then just say, right now we'll give it to dictatorships? You know. Oh yes. You just say, right, okay. <laughs> It's just too much hassle to do in a democracy. You know, people, there's so much, you know, to and froing, and so much, you know, it's slow government, blah blah blah. Let's mm. let's just bung it over to, you know, I mean, that regimes that can make sure it happens. It's the crossroads that we're coming to. Is you say, right, we're going to build an event that's so big, and we make such promises to our partners that yeah. it can go to London, Los Angeles, Paris. You know, perhaps, perhaps Budapest, but you know, cities that are incredibly well developed and of a a certain infrastructural type. Or it can go to places that will throw any amount of money at it, but ask you not to ask any questions. Or you do away the whole thing and just have it in one place every time. Baku every time. (laughs) (laughs) Adam Nelson. Um, Well, I think it's all mainly been covered. I was I was going to 
pick up on uh, on Matt's point about what they look like from here. I think we were speculating the last time we did a podcast um, that the IOC would control the narrative and whatever engineering problems, structural problems were going on during the games would be you know, swept under the carpet a little while while we watched the, the sport on the TV and that's kind of what happened. We didn't experience any of that over here. We didn't see the um, infrastructural malaise that mm. was apparently going on for you know, people getting berated for 45 minutes every day. We weren't, we weren't aware of that, and we just got to enjoy the yeah. sport. Um, I think we have had our expectations raised. You know, Rio, even 2009, 2008 Rio, when it was awarded the Games and was still on the kind of crest of that economic wave, could not have put on a Games like Beijing or London. Mm. Uh, to do what it did was an achievement, and I think mm. we should celebrate that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. Three quick things. First thing, no one ever wants to hear journalists moan. Right? <laughs> so we, we were very aware of that. That this is a story that no, one's, no one cares about. Mm. My, my bus and how bad my hotel was or my, my accommodation yeah, yeah, yeah. was. No one wants to hear Jour- that. Journalist hotel rooms. Never, yeah. never, ne- never <laughs> ever, ever write. My kettle won't fit the sink. Yeah. It's an absolute fucking disgrace. They genuinely had to build my bed. My bed was, my bed was built in front of me. Um, doesn't matter. Two, um, let's not forget that the story changed. Mm. Team GB came second in the medal table. Mm-hmm. That trumped almost all other stories. We beat China. Mm. That's, that's ludicrous. That is, that is simply ludicrous. And three, I can't remember what my third point was. Never make three points. <laughs> <laughs> that was another thing. No, 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 no. There is, there, is, there, is there is a third point. And that is, despite everything we've said, and the Rio did a good job, and the athletes did save them, and Team GB did an amazing job. The IOC does need to be a less demanding Mm. guest. It needs to stop putting so many demands on hosts. And that's the problem it's getting itself into now, where even a wealthy country like Tokyo starts to push back, a country like Japan and Tokyo Mm. starts to push back a bit, where where cities like Boston have referendums and say, no, thank you, where Rome says, no. Mm. This is where the IOC just needs to help itself a bit. Yeah, and Hamburg, of course, which is very much of the type of, you know, non-elite city maybe, but the, the kind of city that you think they could do a job at the Olympics, but they just didn't want to know. Um, and now if you, if you talk to people at the IOC, they will say, we have begun implementing Agenda 2020, we're going to have these... Consul- they five new sports. Well... <laughs> This is the thing, and, and how different does the games have to be each time, realistically? And, you know, I mean, has too much of the Olympic movement model built up to make it possible to dismantle bits of it, take bits off, say, actually, okay, you're only going to have 800 people at your event because you're modern pentathlon or you're, you know, fencing or you're shooting, and there's just not going to be that much demand in a country where there's only yeah. three people who practice the sport. Um, you know, how far can it go realistically? Well, I think you make some good points there. I mean, this is going to sound ludicrously uh, procule, but it but it is something that I heard again and again in in Rio from from foreign journalists. I went, I went to Beijing as well, so I went to a few now to have a look at different games. And London 2012 was was this city at its best. Mm. It, it you know, if you're from here, it, it makes you feel good to be from here. Um, British people are a bit odd as well. We will go see almost anything. We love sport. I mean, it really. It, when you go to other places and you sort of realise they, they like their sports. Mm. So, one of the reasons the Rio got better is that Brazil Brazil started to do better. The sports they cared about they started to do well were second half. So the football, the beach volleyball, the indoor volleyball. First week was the crowds were terrible. I'm sorry. I know that yeah. the cameras probably didn't pick it out. Yeah. 
trust me, I was in venues where it was 10% full, yeah. not half full, mm. 10% full. So London 2012 was odd. We turned up and we watched Hamble. Yeah. You know, that, that's yeah. a bit weird. Mm. Yeah. It's also the whole atmosphere of the city was... The country was different, you know. It was, it was, you know, looking back at it now, it was like a sort of utopia, you know, it's like Brexit and all yeah. this bullshit that we're, you know, living through now. It's like London 2012, just like this moment in time, you know. Yeah, and we, we have to accept as well that we were, we were dealt quite a good hand. We'd had the financial crisis, but basically, London had advanced to such a point by 2005 when it was awarded the games. And Rio has been dealt just the most spectacularly unfair yeah. hand that it could have got yeah, in yeah. terms of they did not expect to be the, in the state they were in by any stretch of the imagination mm. in, in 2009. Um, I think the World Cup two years before might have been a bit ambitious as well. I was just about yeah. to say that. I think any nation planning to host a World Cup and an Olympics back-to-back is pushing it. But yeah. yeah, for Brazil to do it at this current time was was a real stretch. The, the World Cup's an interesting one on, on reflection and... Perhaps FIFA has more to answer for in this respect in terms of making demands on a host nation. For Brazil, Brazil, to have to build as much football infrastructure and renovate as much football infrastructure as they did, surely suggests that you're not having a World Cup in Brazil, you're importing a World Cup to Brazil. Well, we could say the same about South Africa, couldn't, couldn't we? I mean, stadiums that will never, ever be used properly. Um, what's the one in Manaus? I mean, it just seems remarkable, that mm. one in the, um, the Amazon. In the Amazon. Um, was used for Rio. Uh, yeah, yeah, true, <laughs> true, true. Um, well, of course it was going to be used for Rio. Um, look, you're absolutely right. These stakeholders need to take some responsibility. They need to be better guests, I think, less demanding guests. And it's funny that we're talking about this now while... Johnny Fatino is talking about extending the World Cup to yeah. 48 teams. Mm. With, which, you know, is 48 teams that need training facilities, 48 teams that need hotels, entourages, etc. So it's, it's, you know. Well, essentially, I mean, you know, we go back to the Allardyce story, actually. You've got, you know, the England manager is judged on four games, if he's lucky. You know, the, 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 the sort of gas has been taken out of the... Uh, Qualification process, so you know you can dance through that with a with until you get to the sort of group stage. And you, if you don't get out of that, you know you might get three games, you might get four if you get through the, the, the next round. You might get one at yeah. a 48 team World Cup. It's almost like the England manager's job has become like the Ryder Cup captain's job. Well, I think we need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Another time, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up for for part two now. Um, join us again in just a few moments when we will be talking about conference season. Exciting! Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with SportsPro. Welcome back to the concluding part of the SportsPro podcast. Um, we are getting into the thick now of conference season in the sports industry. Um, we at SportsPro are now in the position where we're almost the lead-off event with the brand conference uh, in September um, 
Richard, did you enjoy the brand conference in September? I did, actually. It felt like a bit like sort of um, coming back from your summer holidays. You know, it was quite a nice vibe about the whole thing. It was all a bit back to school, you know, um, protractors and set squares and all that stuff and pencil cases. Um, I won't go on with, you know, what was in my basket. <laughs> but there's, there's a whole sort of... Uh, yeah, no, it was a, I, I thought it was, it was good fun. There was some good stuff on the, on the panel and uh, people sort of felt like they enjoyed being there you know I'm not saying that's true for all conferences you know there's a sort of there's a there's a you know road warrior aspect to conferences but the, the, that one felt you know lively I, I like I like laws as an as sort of as a place generally um, and if we got bored you could look out and there was a cricket match going on at um, was it laws ground staff versus uh, Trent Bridge ground staff I, I actually didn't investigate that far um, I was I was a little bit preoccupied for a lot of days. Guy, guy got, for what it's worth, I know you'll cut this out, but a bloke got 140. <laughs> bloke got 140. <laughs> he was sensational. He was like, yeah. Anyway, but yes, yeah, the conference it's, itself. It's nice to know how engaged those speakers are. The conference itself own. was, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting, the, the, the back-to-school element of it. Obviously, everyone's taken the events of the early part of the year, and I know there was, there was lots of talk about things like Leicester City and the, in, particularly in the performance side of, of some of these events. Um, but then, of course, inevitably, the lessons of the summer and the, the, the big events that, that happen in, in that period. Um, One of the th- things that you notice going you know, to conference, and I do obviously do a bit of moderation at some of these things, that, that they're useful, and you sense a sort of gathering of the, the, the people's the line around big stories starts to sort of coalesce, you know, and people start to then talk about they have a view on and that becomes the sort of almost the received wisdom and then uh, that becomes then people then argue against that so the conferences are quite useful from that sense just to get a sense of where people are and what they think about olympics and euros and you know premier league rebrands and all the stuff that that people read day in day out and we're you know we're, we're obviously um lots of places to get sports business news um and a conference is quite useful just to one there's two conferences going on at the same time essentially there's the stuff on the on the panel where it's where it's formal and you know the codes of sort of language and discussion are, are, are formal and then there's the stuff outside you know and the bar later and that's where the tone of voice changes and you sort of hear a bit of gossip and you hear mm. stuff going on so they're always useful if you go to one a week then of course they're going to drive you nuts and you'll you know um, but I always think it's useful to sort of dip in and dip out and the, the proliferation of conferences now means that you know you need to make some decisions there you can you can you know every meal time you can have sport business analysis you know you can you got you know be on stage breakfast you know the brunch i think is the sort of great um you know sport business brunch is probably one four meals in one day yeah, throwing yeah. a supper yeah 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 there's supper clubs you know there's all day conferences and I think brunch is probably the uh, sort of gap in the market. Sport business brunch, surely. Yeah, but then, then, then it's gonna. There'll be pressure on the next thing. It'll be the sport business. Grab a sandwich between the cheap stop and yeah, the yeah. office. But the, the, the early evening. I like an early evening. I like you know. So this, for example, half four, five o'clock in the pub, Friday afternoon. Lovely. I'd do that. Mm. Um, and I don't want to. You know, I, I, you have to then sort of. You see the same faces. What has to change is that and I'm probably one of those faces, um, is that the people, the conversation doesn't change much. Mm. 
So if you're being critical of the, the conference sort of season, is that actually things move very slowly, mm. you realise, and that people talk about, you know, you know, I've been talking about, you know, second screen stuff, you know, or things like uh, integrity in sport, mm. you know, or women in sport. And it's, it's the, the issues are the same. We know what they are. It takes a very long time for anything to change. And, but in the meantime, you've still got to get a conference out. Mm. So that's tricky. The, the experience, I guess, has got to be different from for someone who's coming at it from your perspective, Matt, where you're, you're looking for news, you're looking for, yeah, yeah. for something a little bit more substantial, I guess, or a little bit more controversial. I'm looking for hot food. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, um, look, what journalists want... Um, we want a story. We always want stories. We're always interested in those. Um, and what Richard's talking about, that kind of the chatting, the received wisdom, the, the trading of gossip and rumours, that's our stock in trade, you know. So what I like, I don't go to many. I, go, I try and I pick and choose. And I'm not, like, brand loyal. I am, I'm a complete magpie. I will look at the programmes and go, OK, that conference is addressing the issues that I'm interested in. And they've got good speakers. I wouldn't mind hearing him or her. I'll have a look at the delegates. Oh, yeah, I've been looking at that story. I can get a line out of them. Mm. I'm, it's all about me. I'm sorry. It's, it's a very transactional <laughs> process for me. And the successful conferences, the ones I go, yeah, that was good, are the ones where I've got four or five stories. Mm. Um, it's, it's that black and white. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose generally if anybody's going to say anything unexpected it's unexpected to everybody but them if they're any good at at their you know kind of message management but the problem the problem with with a lot of conferences is that they start in a from a sales perspective not a a sort of editorial perspective so you're not stu- you you're immediately you say right okay well we'll have a panel on the future of esports yeah. And then you're going to say, okay, well, who can we get on that? Who can we get to sponsor it? And whoever sponsors it, you can be on the panel, and you might even get to moderate, mm. you know. And oh, we've got a big name, um, but they don't want to be on a panel with someone else that might conflict. In which case, there's not going to be any tension in the room. You need tension in the room, yeah, yeah, yeah. because that makes things spark, and that's entertainment. But actually, if you're selling a conference, actually all of those things are a bit of a pain in the ass because you can't get speakers to turn up. They don't want to be exposed reputationally. Well, you know, if I'm in that situation, I'm sure I'd be the same. And it's quite difficult structurally if you're starting out as a, as a sort of corporate... This is, this is a business. Um, then it's quite tricky to, to, to come up with interesting stuff, mm. you know, to talk about live in front of an audience because no one wants to look an idiot and no one wants to say something that's going to be in, you know on the back page of the sun mm. as a moderator I mean, how do you how do you get around that then well it's tricky you know you, you you've got to sort of say you've got to play the game to a certain extent you've got to try and ask interesting questions you've got to try and think of um, angles that maybe get them out of their comfort zone if they want to go there. Some people want to do that and just don't have the opportunity. Quite often people come off and say, oh, I wish we'd have talked about this, that and the other. Yeah. Do you chat to them before in the VIP bit? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's... But then do you stick to that? <laughs> or do you... 
Well, it depends on what they're like. It depends on what, you know, like, for example, there was a, there was a you know, talk, I've just come from this, so it's very front of mind. I've just, um, so Game Changers, which is sort of, you know, the, the women in sport um, conference. Now, women in sport conferences are tricky to make exciting because everyone knows what side of the argument you're supposed to be on. You know, we're pro-women. You know, it's like, and everyone in the room is not, there's no one in there. But it's trying to then sort of inject some energy and, and uh, you know, we all want women's sport to get a higher profile. We all want them to get more sponsorship. Yeah. And so, but just having a conference and talking about it is not going to, you know, that's, no. that's mm. a side issue. However, I thought quite cleverly they got uh, the... Uh, woman uh, Rosie Underwood is the beauty editor of uh, OK Magazine. Now that is a completely different tone yeah, of voice. Yeah, mm. yeah. She was really interesting on, you know, and the question being, well, do sports people sell magazines? And no, they don't, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I just just thinking about just to give some examples of, I think what Rich is talking about and what I was saying before about how what I want from a conference is mm. stories and and or context, preferably both. So we. I don't know, we were both at Soccer X, mm-hmm. and, and Soccer X was an interesting one this year uh, up in Manchester. I've been to a few now. I think I've been to nearly all of them since they've been up there. I mean, the wow. thing about this, sometimes you're just unlucky. This is sport, isn't it? So the, the sports news guys all came up to Soccer X on the Monday because FIFA General Secretary Fatma Samora was giving her first big public speech in this country. You know, this is an interesting story. First female, number two at, at, at FIFA, first African. Um, you know, a real surprise when, when she was announced in Mexico. You know, we were really intrigued. We were going to get a chance to chat to her as well, informally, off the record. So we all rocked up there. Her speech, to be honest, was very stilted and flat and uh, boring. Um, she followed Andy Burnham, politician, who gave quite a good speech, actually. Mm. He's, he's much more convincing when he talks about football than he is when he talks about politics. Um, but... Um, in the lunchtime briefing, she was brilliant, really warm to her. I just think she needs to be let go. She should be front and central right now. She's, mm-hmm. a, very, she's, a, she's a real asset for FIFA. Really nice. It was, we had a few issues about what off the record meant, but that's just a, <laughs> a journalistic <laughs> argument. But anyway, we'll, we'll leave that there. But then, unfortunately, um, half of us had to leave. Half of the sports news guys had to leave because we were still dealing with the Wiggins TUE story and, mm. and there were interviews being done at the velodrome across town that we all had to pot tail over to. So I felt sorry for Soccer X that day in that a lot of us came up there to, to do a Fatma Samora story, then half of us had to leave because there was a Team Sky Wiggins Dave Brailsford story other side of town. And then I went back on Tuesday and Wednesday and what were we talking about on Tuesday and Wednesday? Exactly. Allardyce. Mm. Yeah. Wembley, you know. The story was 200 miles south. And on Tuesday, and this is where people are cautious at conferences, no one wanted to say anything. You'd have thought, I mean, my editor thought, well, Matt, you might as well go to Soccer X because there will be football people there, presumably talking about the only football story in town. Mm. No, they weren't. No one wanted to say a word on Tuesday. People were willing to say something a little bit on Wednesday once he'd been canned, mm. but whilst he was dangling, no one, no one wanted to talk. Mm. It was one of the most boring days I've spent <laughs> at a conference anywhere because I got nothing. It was just a place to work. One of the most valuable conferences I've been to, not editorially at the time, and I think when I was there at the time, I thought, God, I've, I've come back, I've barely done an interview, I've barely 
met anyone who's directly That's relevant. That's what people say as well. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, um, was the Web Summit in Dublin um, okay. last year, which is this gargantuan affair, and they've actually moved it to, to Lisbon for, yeah, uh, for 2017. <laughs> wow. um, there, there's something to be said for bringing in ideas from way, way outside your... Oh, yeah. Well, rather mean, just, than just, you know, it's like you go to South by Southwest or you go to the Web Summit and you talk about sport. You're like a... You get chaired out. It's like, you know, you're like Robin Williams in that, you know. It's like a sort of... You can appear zeitgeisty in a way that, you know, and if they come over here, it's like when people in Snapchat turn up at a sports business conference. They're sort of... People are looking open-mouthed at them. There's sort of juxtaposition of, you know, we're, we're so into silos now. So mm. we're sunk into this sport business silo. And next to, you know, and everyone's talking about esports. I love the, ju- you know, the, that whole esports thing. Yeah. And because it's, yeah. it's caught the sports business on the hop. And you've now got, you know, it's the sort of William Hague with his baseball cap around the You know, it's yeah. that blokes in Chile. Well, it's, so about, the, you know. the best sports conference I've ever been to. Is. Do you, are you aware of Men in Blazers? These guys, these American, British guys in America that have got this just, podcast going. Just done an interview with Arsene Wenger, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have. They are basically selling the Premier League mm. to to, the, to North America. They're doing an amazing job. They did a thing called Blazerthon, which is kind of a sort of a play on. Um, is it, there's a big comic uh, conference somewhere. But anyway, it was Comic-Con. really good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I went to that. They got loads of British managers, football. They've got Scudamore, they got football chairman over there. And because they're not in Britain and they're, and they're not surrounded, I, was one the, I think I was the only British uh, journalist there. They were, their guards were down, yeah. they, were, they were much more relaxed. Yeah. Um, they did a, it was a very irreverent um, yeah, yeah. conference. They did uh, the whole esports stuff, the whole FIFA 2016 at the time, about how that has been absolutely crucial to breaking soccer in America. Mm. You know how a lot of Americans have come to the game that way first, yeah. and it was it was great. They had a bit of music, they had pies, they had football shirts. They really kind of went for that whole British angle fandom thing, and it was great because everyone was relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's hard to do, yeah, mm. unless you're going to do it very tongue in cheek, and they were. Yeah, I don't know if you could get away with that here, but to bring strange speakers in and left field type stuff yeah, yeah. they actually talk, they spoke about some really serious stuff they got mm. a guy from the Bundesliga there a guy from La Liga there they had a proper conversation about global expansion mm. yeah. it was great yeah. Yeah. and I mean even professionally there's a trick being missed if you're not involving yourself in stuff from outside of, of this realm I mean you talk about esports yeah. and we're going on to Sportel in a couple of weeks time um, esports is nowhere near as big a story in uh, in what's going to happen to the sports industry in the next five or ten years, as say Netflix or you know how people are doing things in the real world and how they're going to bring those habits into 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 how they interact with sports. Well, well, you know, once it, it, the, the whole Apple, you know, so the, it, it, if the future, one one thing you notice is that you know there is a body of you know a group significant group within the sports business let's call it that that wants to the assumption being that the direction of travel is that sport football clubs will turn ultimately into sort of versions of Amazon and you know it's very transactional it's very data driven and you know the the language is very cold it's all about harvesting and warehousing data and you know all of that stuff and actually 
it's I'm not sure that's what people want, you know. Mm. And there is, I can see why it happens. It's just that you can do it, and you know, the fact that data is available is, you know, there's so many more things you can do with it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're. Uh, you, people forget the magic of sport. We talked about it earlier about the Olympics. People forget that that's the whole. You know, you can get that stuff elsewhere but actually you go and watch a football match on a Saturday afternoon for some for surprise and wonder and, and the rest of it and uh, if you forget that you do it at your peril what a lovely note to finish on thank you very much for joining us uh, Richard Gillis thank you very much thanks for having me thank you Matt yeah likewise thank you and thank you Adam who we're going to pretend has not already left. Um, and thanks to everyone for joining us again. Hopefully we won't be gone quite so long next time. Bye-bye.